Aren't you the luckiest listener in the whole wide world? Well, of course you are. Give yourself a pat on the back. Head over to Coffee for Good in the Solomon Mead House on the campus of the Second Congregational Church and order yourself a cup of the best coffee in Greenwich, Connecticut and toast yourself because you've tuned in to the Friday, 4th of March, 2022 episode of the one and only Greenwich Attempt for All Season Show podcast Hosted by me, the one and only, as far as I know, Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the Gateway to New England. Well, my friends, welcome to today's show. And of course, welcome to Greenwich, Connecticut, one of America's most fascinating communities. Now, whether you've been a resident of Greenwich for nearly 400 years or 400 seconds or somewhere in between, whether you've been here to stay or you're just passing through, well, I got news for you. You're part of our history. So we welcome you with smiles and with open arms. Trust me on that. All right. Now, um, now that uh, now that I am over uh, a little bit of a period of jet lag acquired from my recent return trip from my home in Hawaii, um, thanks to copious amounts of coffee at home and favorite hangouts such as Coffee for Good in the Solomon Mead House on the campus of the Second Congregational Church, I've resumed my four to six mile hikes in the bright sunshine we've been blessed with since our recent ice storm. Now, my friends, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't it announced on Groundhog Day last month that we were to be treated to six more weeks of winter? Well, um, I'm starting to wonder. Earlier this week, um, I gazed upon a forsythia bush that was already revealing brilliant yellow blossoms. I've also noted uh, in my travels uh, that the shoots of tulips and daffodils and snowdrops are beginning to emerge from the ground. The sun seems to be dawning earlier and earlier each morning. And just the other day, I took in the exciting, vibrant red and golden yellow hues of a vivid sunset in the western skies. It was really beautiful. Now, each day brings uh, its share of such natural blessings. I think you'll take my word for that. And I urge you to go outside and experience it for yourself. With that said, let's get on with today's business, shall we? Coming up on today's show. As we observe Women's History Month, we're not just celebrating women from Greenwich's remarkable history, but also recognizing those women and women's organizations in the present day who are actively engaged in both scholarship and preservation of Greenwich, Connecticut's remarkable history. On Talk of the Town, you'll hear a conversation I had with Greenwich native Missy Wolf. She is the author of Hidden History of Colonial Greenwich, in her book, Wolf reveals as never before the lost world of Greenwich, Connecticut in the 1600s, a result of transcribing hundreds of handwritten documents owned by the town. 
Missy Wolf is also the author of Insubordinate Spirit, a true story of life and loss in earliest America, 1610 to 1665. My friends, it's also my pleasure that I announce that Missy Wolf has continued with her invaluable scholarship by publishing the great ledger records of the town of Greenwich, 1640. 1742 volumes one and two. Additionally, I will be coming to you from the Millbank family mausoleum in Putnam Cemetery, where you'll hear me talk about the life, legacy, and philanthropy of one of Greenwich's most remarkable late 19th and early 20th century luminaries, Elizabeth Millbank Anderson, whose influence is still with us in the early 21st century. My friends, we'll have all this announcements and more as today's show unfolds. Stick around. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Support is made possible by an award winner of the Landscape Architecture Foundation, Greenwich-based Peter F. Alexander, Landscape Architect of Site Design Associates, believes that landscape design has the capacity to transform perceptions and ultimately inaugurate a deeper respect for the natural environment. Since 1979, Peter F. Alexander has been tireless in his commitment to excellence in project design, management, implementation, and personal service. Building upon a cornerstone of experience and trust, he believes that each landscaped project design expands the interpretation of design, craftsmanship, and sustainability. Peter F. Alexander is the founder of the Soundshore Environmental Information Institute. His notable projects include the Olympics Training Center at Lake Placid, New York, the Master Plan of the Calf Island Conservancy in Greenwich, Connecticut, numerous residential projects, and much more. Proudly collaborative in his approach, Peter F. Alexander's creations of immersive experiential landscape spaces cultivates a sense of community and connections that are second to none. Learn more about Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect at sitedesignassociates.com. Again, that's sitedesignassociates.com. You can also call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. By all means, when you contact Peter F. Alexander, please be sure to mention that you heard about him through the Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast with Jeffrey Bingham Mead. Thank you. We also welcome Long Island Sound Institute. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. The Institute aims to use modern planning and implementing new technology to conserve Long Island Sound. Looking forward to its stewardship in the area. To learn more about LISI, go on the web to www.li. S-I-S-T-U-D-Y dot info or call 475-897-5444. Again, that's 475-897-5444. And we are welcoming a new major supporter to the show. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is in the process of organizing and implementing a virtual Ambassador Museum based in Greenwich, Connecticut. It seeks to be a tribute to ambassadors, their families, experiences, and the millions of lives that have been affected by them. 
The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is looking for records, photographs, and videos of ambassadors and their families, or people who have been associated with ambassadors in the past. Monetary donations are also welcome. Funding supports the Virtual Museum, which is receiving support from the University of Denver and the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. Throughout the town of Greenwich's 20th century history, a number of ambassadors lived here, perhaps the most prominent being Ambassador Joseph Werner Reed. He grew up on historic Denbig Farm off Riversville Road in the backcountry and served as ambassador to Morocco and as chief of protocol of the United States, among other diplomatic assignments. On future shows, we're looking forward to featuring histories of those from Greenwich who served the nation in various ambassadorial roles. You can learn more at amusa.info. Again, that's amusa.info. You can call 203-347-4604. Again, that's 203-347-4604. Or you can write to Post Office Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Again, that post office box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. Welcome to Talk of the Town on the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast with Jeffrey Binghamid, your host. Here we engage in informative conversation and commentary with Greenwich, Connecticut's movers and shakers. Well, this is really fantastic. As we observe Women's History Month, we are not just celebrating women from Greenwich's history, but also those in the present day who are actively engaged in its scholarship and preservation. Missy Wolfe, author of Hidden History of Colonial Greenwich, discovered the lost world of Greenwich, Connecticut in the 1600s by transcribing hundreds of handwritten documents owned by the town. Digitally ordering these centuries-old papers opened an ancient portal that showed how the town was first created, managed, and developed from a wilderness. Lost place names are recovered along with the functioning of the Greenwich Plantation, operated for over a century. This first town was a mandatory and communal endeavor that employed watchers and warners, sheepmasters, cowkeepers, fence viewers, haywards, pounders, and planters. Faced with an ever-challenging new world, the first citizens of the town of Greenwich created many new world strategies. Quite experimentally, they balanced religious and civic authority, private and common interests, and financial inequities across communities. 
As a consequence of their heroic efforts, these first comers often found it more challenging to please their own than it was to please their God. <laughs> the first here were compelled to depart from the past and fashion an idealized yet still imperfect new society. Missy Wolf details the strategies and setbacks of creating community in colonial America's first period. This work includes many new maps and illustrations. Historian Missy Wolf has always loved histories and biographies that allow her to time travel to meet unusual people and experience dramatic events. Growing up, she loved the works of Lady Antonia Fraser, Alison Weir, and Barbara Tuckman. Impressed by their research and writing, Wolf began investigating the earliest history of her hometown, Greenwich, Connecticut. For this, she was also inspired by Nathaniel Philbrick's Mayflower and Russell Charteau's Island at the Center of the World. After receiving an MBA from Columbia University and an early career in advertising, Wolf pursued her interest in history, design, and fine and decorative arts with an associate's degree from the New York School of Interior Design and a Certificate of Appraisal Studies for fine and decorative arts from New York University. She remains fascinated by the past and its appreciation by the modern world. Missy Wolf is also the author of Insubordinate Spirit, a true story of life and loss in earliest America, 1610-1665. It's with pleasure that I announce that Missy Wolf has continued with her invaluable scholarship by publishing the Great Ledger Records of the Town of Greenwich, 1640-1742 in Volumes 1 and 2. In Volume 1, A Century of Ancient Town Records is rediscovered and revealed. An embarrassment of riches describes a vault filled with thousands of documents in several thick volumes that were handwritten in homemade ink with quiddle pens and recorded the entire first century of the town of Greenwich's colonial beginnings. These records were so extensive, however, they defied comprehensive transcription and publication attempts. These riches were invaluable, to say the least, inaccessible, I'm sorry, scribbled, scratchy, chaotically organized, and seemingly often illegible. They showed a dedication to documenting this world in erratic spelling, layout, and order. They resisted untangling for over three centuries until the advent of technology. My friends, i got to tell you, I have seen these books, and what I have just said is 100% true. I just ask you to trust me on that. <laughs> now addressed with voice dictation, digital reordering, and editing, they finally reveal the inner workings of this world with all of the 18th century challenges and solutions in two volumes. A boom for genealogy. Hundreds of people are newly located in this time and place. For history research, a colonial first period town is fully documented in its strategies to order themselves, their society, geography, and their governance. An era undocumented and utterly recognizable today. Yes, indeed. One marvels how time can now be so wonderfully traveled. Volume 2 is the never-previously-described comprehensive grantor and grantee data for the first colonized century of the town of Greenwich. This information concerning the first sales and purchases of land between individuals, including will distributions and gifts, is arranged alphabetically and chronologically by grantor name. The volume includes land descriptors, price, 
signatories, and many, many newly discovered personal relationships. Personal names that are not grantors and or grantees are also indexed for the first time. My friends, Missy Wolf's published works are available on Amazon.com. You can also contact the Greenwich Historical Society's gift shop at 203-869-6899 for availability. If you would like further information, I invite you to contact me, and you can do so by email by going to Greenwich, a town for all seasons at gmail.com. Again, you can contact me at Greenwich, a town for all seasons at gmail.com. Welcome to Greenwich, a town for all seasons. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. What was the spark that ignited your interest in 17th century Greenwich? I had heard in some old histories, and I read just very short, briefly, that there had been a very large Indian massacre launched out of Tomac Cove, and I wanted to find out more about it, and I certainly did. And that resulted in my first book about the founding of Greenwich, which is called Insubordinate Spirit. It's the, the uh, sort of the uh, nonfiction story of Elizabeth uh, Winthrop D. Callett and uh, how she was used as a political pawn between the Dutch and the English. There was a, a very strong tension on our border between our current border between Stamford and Greenwich was also the border between New Netherland and New England. And we were on the Dutch side of the border. However, the English wanted us badly. They set Elizabeth up as an adulteress. She married William Hallett in, within New Netherland in Manhattan by Governor Keith, the Dutch director. However, the English in Stamford, Stamford was a satellite of the New Haven colony. The New Haven colony very much wanted Greenwich. They didn't recognize her Dutch marriage, so they slandered her and used her and called her an adulteress. But in effect, it was just a ploy seize her land. They did try and seize it. They said they were going to save it from the Dutch. However, Elizabeth didn't have you know any feeling that way at all. She didn't want her land saved by the English because they wanted to take her to court. And at that time, the uh, you know punishment for adultery was the death penalty. So you know the politics you know at that time was very fierce. Now share some thoughts with us about the early records you consulted and your research methods uh, in compiling this book? Well, I, I have long known that down in the Greenwich Town Vault are some thousands of, of documents, all in handwriting from the 1600s, that have been cherry-picked over the years by people looking for their genealogy and for the churches. However, they've never been comprehensively transcribed. Uh, someone in the 1970s spent a lot of money and beautifully conserved them. They're all bound and washed in plastic sleeves, um, but they were never contemplated comprehensively transcribed because there's so many of them and you could never sit there and type them all out. But now with voice dictation technology, I've set up my little card table down there and I have a microphone and I run my hand, my finger on each line and I speak it. The computer then types it out. That is how I've been transcribing. It is the only way of making this information accessible, yeah. which I have tried to do in Hidden History of Colonial Greenwich. You know, you find out so many obsolete place names, lost place names in Greenwich, and, you know, all about the initial industry. You know, I read that it was speculated that the first economy here in the 1600s was selling apples and clams. Well, in effect, 
the first economy was meat and leather tanning. Mm. There were tanneries, many tanneries, many uh, livestock pounds throughout the town. Uh, you know, they would then salt meat in barrels and ship it around the region. They would make leather. They would make and braid tack, making saddles, harnesses, shoes. You know, any kind of gloves were a big product of Greenwich at that time. So it, it was so hard to farm here. It was so rocky that they, they turned to animal husbandry as the first industry, which was then largely, you know, this era of the Greenwich plantation really only lasted for 100 years because in the American Revolution, and they worked so hard to create this place. It was backbreaking work. I mean, these people, they call themselves strivers. Yes. And they work so terribly hard to make a go of it here. And I think actually, you know, that's a, an echo from history that still resonates today. The people from of Greenwich also to, in modern day work so very hard to have gotten here, to stay here, to make a success of it here. You know, I, you know, the town is looking for a, a sort of a tagline for the real estate industry here to help improve sales. And I think they could take one from our history and the tagline should be, "Drivers welcome." I <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll we'll put that out there too. I mean, I think that, right. that would work absolutely. Now, I got to ask you something. You wrote in your book. You said the town of Greenwich's founding, in particular, reflects the Anglo-Dutch anguish in America. Now, that caught my attention, and I wanted to know if you would talk to us about this. Well, at the time of Greenwich founding, there was they, there were sort of four phases of the Anglo-Dutch wars happening in. Europe, and they were primarily naval-fought battles, but, you know, the, the conflict between the Dutch and the English was happening in Europe, and they used then the colonies in America to help support this hegemony that they were uh, trying to achieve. Mm. And Elizabeth's story of the jurisdictional tension between the Dutch and the English played out here in Greenwich, where the English wanted to seize Greenwich. New Haven Colony was jealous of the Connecticut Colony in Hartford because they saw that they had become successful by expanding their jurisdictional reach, controlling more and more uh, little towns on Long Island and on this side of the Sound. New Haven Colony was faltering, trying to achieve the same thing. New Haven established Stamford, <clears throat> and they also wanted Greenwich to encroach nearer to the Dutch on Manhattan. So they were trying to do that. And, you know, in... Elizabeth's story was a land grab story, what they were trying to do. And so there was such, you know, tension about that and saber rattling about Elizabeth's Greenwich land that they agreed to have a treaty, the Treaty of Hartford in 1650. Mm. You know, they tried to prosecute Elizabeth in 48. And at that treaty, the Dutch, it was Peter Stuyvesant and John Winthrop Jr. were meeting to reconcile these jurisdictional issues of laws mandated in one uh, jurisdiction not respected in the other. Elizabeth's story was part of this, and Elizabeth, you know, was John Winthrop Jr.'s cousin and, uh, you know, past sister-in-law. His father was her guardian. Elizabeth was a intimate, you know, Winthrop family member. And so they decided at that treaty that Greenwich would remain under the control of the Dutch. However, they, you know, as perfect politicians, they created not just one border between the Dutch and the English in Greenwich. They created three borders, which, <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the ultimate political compromise, yeah. you know, which confused historians or, you know, uh, appealed to, you know, their jurisdictional wishes over time. And we've, 
then it somehow got distorted over time right. that Greenwich was an, founded as an English territory, which it, it was not. Yeah. I have a, yeah. an article out on that. Yeah. That we were a Dutch jurisdiction, you know, for our first 16 years until New Haven Colony then took us over, sort of against the wishes of the people, even though they, you know, had to sign on to it. You could be punished and brought to court if you didn't agree with the New Haven Colony takeover. So it was a sort of a hostile takeover by the New Haven Colony. Mm -hmm. And then when New Haven Colony failed, Connecticut Colony took us over. And, you know, that's when all of our records, the majority of the records down in the vault, began to be produced because Connecticut Colony mandated, you know, now, okay, guys, locally you have to record your vital statistics, your marriages, births, deaths, land transactions, which is where we find, you know, the obsolete place names been lost, but now hopefully are becoming recovered. All of the records keeping is from the Connecticut colony. How would you characterize the men and women of Greenwich in the 1600s? If I could have a second to, to read you something I wrote, because I like it. Okay. okay, go ahead. <laughs> you know, the people that were here that governed the town were the, the sons and daughters of the people who had first landed at the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Mm. So they were the second generation people. And those people who first landed, you know, had to tackle how do we divide up all this vast wilderness? You know, they had to create a system for it. And so they devised a lottery system. Our town at first, just the town people handed out grants of land. But, of course, a lot of people started squawking about that, finding it unfair. So they they borrowed this device of the lottery system, which had been used up around in the Massachusetts area. That's how we began dividing our wilderness up. But these people were, you know, taught by their parents. Their parents were children of the Protestant Reformation. They were very used to standing up for themselves. And I would say they were, I would describe them as ornery, sort of outspoken, standing their, you know, their ground with grit in town meetings. Oh, the town meeting arguments are classic. You could reproduce them today. <laughs> and they were... Um, you know, they were not these plain, soft-spoken, two-dimensional characters of pilgrims or Puritans, you know, with the tall gray hats and the buckle in the center. They weren't anything like that. Yeah. They were tough, I would say, testy, very determined. They were planters, really acting more like cowboys and cowgirls. They, they were people who broke wild horses. Uh, for domestic use, because here there were many wild, formerly domesticated animals, but the fencing at that time was so terrible that animals would frequently break through and get out into the wild. So our people had a term for these wild horses. They were called jadges, sort of a uh, post-Elizabethan slang term that's in the archives. You know, they would break wild horses. They would ride and repair these huge fence lines that they made. They made a fence line that stretched all the way continuously from the Mianus River down to the Byram River. Wow. They fenced off all the necks that reach out into the water. So they would use that as alternately putting animals in there mm. to manure it over the winter, and then they let the animals out into impounds or pounds and then plant those areas. So they were, you know, the necks were really the production centers. of, And the necks that reach into the water were really the municipal Greenwich plantation. But if you lived here, you were required to work it, you know, maintain it, you know, plant it, harvest it, uh, maintain the animals in those necks and, and fence them. So it was, you know, a very uh, sort of co-op 
situation here in the 1600s mm-hmm. to make a go of it. You had your own farm. So, you know, these people, men, women, boys and girls, you know, they all used and knew how to use guns and knives, and they hunted and trapped and shot for their, you know, <laughs> for their defense and their diet. You know, they had to mark all of their livestock. They they were town branders. They were You had to earmark all of your animals so you knew who they belonged to. They um, drove herds of sheep and oxen and cattle. Imagine this. Yeah. From Old Greenwich, which was the epicenter, it was the population center, they would drive herds of animals up out of Old Greenwich, up Sheep Hill Road to Palmer Hill Road, mm-hmm. crossing the Mayanus at Palmer Hill because that was the original crossing site for hundreds of years before the current location crossing is, down Valley Road to Coscob around the, you know, the Mead Avenue area, which was a triangular small field called the Upper Coscob Field, there by uh, Sticklings Brook across from the Coscob Firehouse right. was one of the first fields that they would, you know, out pasture their animals to. Imagine the sight of that. Wouldn't you love to have seen that? Oh, that would have been quite something. <laughs> it really would. Mm-hmm. Friends, uh, we're, we're going to take a, a short break. This is Talk of the Town on Greenwich, a town for all seasons. I'm Jeffrey Bingham, Mead, your host. And my guest today is Missy Wolf. She is the author of an extraordinary book on the town's 17th century history, Hidden History of Colonial Greenwich. We'll be right back. May I let you in on a secret? In my not-so-humble opinion... Nothing beats the comfort and soothing qualities of a good, hot cup of coffee in a historical setting. The Coffee for Good Cafe is located in the stone 1858 Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue behind the Second Congregational Church of Greenwich. My friends, this is not your ordinary high-end retail coffee shop. Coffee for Good is a new, unique, nonprofit partnership with the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Coffee for Good's authentically historical legendary ambiance will make you want to sip and stay for hours. Believe me, I'm there. (laughs) Enjoy exquisite indoor and outdoor dining. The service is attentive and friendly. And did I mention... Ready for this? That the parking is free? Hey, just saying. Oh, and let me throw this into this free Wi-Fi. Need a place to study, work, read, meet up with friends, or just relax? Make Coffee for Good your destination. It's certainly one of mine. 48 Maple Avenue in the 1858 Stone Solomon Mead House. Open 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Saturday. Closed Sunday. Learn more at coffeeforgood.org. Again, that's coffeeforgood.org. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, your host. Contact me anytime at Greenwich A Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. Again, that's Greenwich A Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. Check out the show's news blog at Greenwich A Town for All Seasons.blogspot.com. Are you on Facebook? Well, I hope you are. Look up the Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show page and like us, please. Facebook groups I recommend you subscribe to include You Know You're from Greenwich If, administered by Greenwich resident Judy Goss, images of Greenwich Connect. Administered by Jim Ramsey and Nostalgia Greenwich. 
My guest is Missy Wolf. She is the author of an extraordinary book on the town's 17th century history, Hidden History of Colonial Greenwich. It's really so good to have you with us today, Missy. Thank you. Oh, thanks so much. Just wanted to say that, you know, since we have uh, so few bookstores, we have Diane's books now, but the book is available at Fine Sod Hardware, Greenwich Hardware, Finch's Pharmacy, lots of places all around town. Including the Greenwich Historical Society. They have a little store over there. I wanted to ask you if you would please talk to us a little bit about something that intrigued me. It's called the Switchback Road. You know, the Switchback Road, the, the Greenwich Town plot, you know, some say, where was our, you know, traditional New England town with the church at the center? Well, we actually, we did have one. It was in on this the west side of the Mayanus River, uh, which they first called Horseneck. There was Greenwich, which was old Greenwich. And then when they crossed over, finally, 40 years later, took them to expand across the river. The town plot is up where the Episcopal Church is and Putt's Tavern, the sh- synagogue. And then the second congregational, you know, is sitting on top of the hill. So that was our sort of western Greenwich uh, town plot. North of that town plot area, as you come down North Street, the top of North Street, was a local commons where they they pastured animals up there to have them convenient and close by. However, their daily access was to go from the town plot where they had their home lots and houses down to Belhaven. Belhaven Neck was their favorite place to to plant and keep animals because it wasn't as cliffy and rocky as Coscob Neck or Rocky Neck where Millbrook is. Byron Point was pretty far away. So they really went back and forth from Belhaven called Horse Neck Field Horseneck Common Field was the first field developed up to the town plot back and forth every day. And, of course, then their houses reached. The first, Some of the first colonial houses were down by Belhaven. And in fact, the, that town plot location up by Christchurch was, yeah, Christ was their second choice. At first, they wanted to locate the second town down by the Boys and Girls Club mm. and work their way in and lay it out sort of so that it reached back where the car dealerships are. However, that was in 1673, and that was the year that the Dutch for one year retook Manhattan. There were armed Dutch warships going up and down Long Island Sound. That gave pause, and they realized that that location was far too vulnerable to attack by water. So they pulled back in a mile inland and set the town plot you know, up on top of that plateau from which they could see Long Island Sound, you know, and and survey it constantly. That was surprising to me. Yes, yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah, I was going to ask you what are um, or were some of the surprises that you feature in the book. Well, they, you know, they had to grapple with brand new things. They people coming over here thought that they would make a, a fully one hundred percent, you know, Protestant society. Of course, that was impossible. You know, there were some people who came over who who just came over for you know. Uh, trying to make some money. There were mer- a lot of merchants. There was civil unrest in England, and they were, you know, the, the churches were being, people were being killed if you, you know, it was a, the sort of a Catholic Protestant civil war happening in Europe, and they came over here trying to escape that and keep their families safe. Along comes a, a new variation. There were always schisms within the Protestant religion, people feeling, you know, variations and versions on the theme. However, a, a radical new thought 
came into being on uh, Long Island and towns near Manhattan, and it was the, the Quaker philosophy. Ah, yes. You know, what do we do with this animal? And in Greenwich particularly, it was very difficult because Protestantism was a state-mandated religion, and Connecticut Colony dictated that you, if you have a community, you have to have a minister. Mm-hmm. Well, that was fine. Greenwich population was always very small, and then when they expanded across the Mianus River, suddenly they have two communities, and they can't afford a minister for each community. So they required the minister then to start splitting his time, you know, on either side of the river. Now imagine that, all year long, in the winter, having to travel from Old Greenwich, up Sheep Hill Road, crossing at Palmer Hill, down Valley Road, up the country road, or modern-day post road, on the switchback that went to reach the town plot switchback, very arduous to get there. You know, the current roadway replaces it. It's a straight shot from Greenwich High School up to the top of the hill. You know, if you're if you're going that direction south, you know, Millbrook is on your left and the Greenwich High School playing field is on your right. Now we have a straight shot, but it was a very steep switchback, and you can still see traces of it there. And the minister, you know, it was practically impossible. So we had a string of ministers, about 10 people, that quit practically as soon as they got here, you know, and finding it way too difficult. So that was a real struggle that we had keeping ministers. When the Quaker religion uh, was embraced by a number of our town people, townsmen, they said, since we believe in the Quakers, we're not going to pay for a Puritan a Protestant minister. And, oh, that caused such acrimony <laughs> yeah. that they... They really banished them yes. to Byram. Yes. So partitioning, you know, happened even even then because sure. it was just too divisive. The community had to have cohesion to work as one, yeah. you know, with everyone in agreement, sort of a common myth that we have to believe in to make this endeavor work. So, you know, they, and they had to grapple with another thing, which was the generation that first governed Greenwich then had their children grow up and become adults, and they too needed land. Mm-hmm. They looked at how long it had taken them to develop Old Greenwich in these tiny little plots. When they expanded across the river, they surveyed Greenwich Assault, hundreds and hundreds of open acreage. Yeah. You know, and so they, they wanted to, there was a movement to give their kids all this land, ten, they called the 10-acre lot dispute, 10 acres beginning at the top of North Street, North Street at North Maple, yeah. and then going northward. Give them 10 acres for free. Yeah. Well, that, that caused huge conflict because the old guy said, you can't do that because that'll damnify my holdings. You know, it'll wreck the tax structure, which yes. is based on cost of the land purchased. And if you're going to give the boys the land free, you know, that'll totally wreck our, our prior agreement. And so there was a debate about that for 10 years. So there coming to grips with brand new issues which they didn't know they were going to have to face and it was it's been really fun to see how they how they worked it out and by the way the old guys won in the end and they the boys never got the land for free they they did have to <laughs> they did have to pay for it it's an imperfect world isn't it indeed well yeah yeah it is what it you is you know you think that oh life was you know romantic and in the 1600s here absolutely it was not these people worked I believe, certainly, as hard as we work on our hardest days every day, you know, and they faced, you know, they were nursing their families through cholera, smallpox, typhoid, bad teeth, broken bones, 
you know, and doing it without our modern technologies and without any power tools and without science. You know, it was quite a life. My friends, uh, my guest today has been Missy Wolf. She is the author of Hidden History of Colonial Greenwich. My friends, please put this amazing book about 17th century Greenwich, Connecticut on your reading list. Missy Wolf, I want to thank you very, very much for being with us today. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you so much. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I have to admit that for a late winter day here in Greenwich, Connecticut, you cannot ask for much better regarding weather. It's a bit sunny, a little bit on the breezy side, but um, since coming back from my uh, my home in Hawaii recently, uh, this is a bit on the tolerable side. I kind of like this very, very much. Um, and I have to tell you that where I am right now is on the highest point in Putnam Cemetery off of Parsonage Road in the mid-country area of, um, of town. Well, you're probably asking, well, what brings me here? Well, as you know, it is Women's History Month uh, all around the United States, and uh, that certainly is very much the case here in Greenwich because throughout our history, we have had some truly extraordinary women uh, who have contributed to the history and to the uh, to the culture uh, and to business and everything else here in um, in the town's uh, nearly 382 years of history. The person uh, that um, I wanted to honor today and to call your attention to uh, was an American philanthropist. She was an advocate for public health and women's education. She was the daughter of a very, very successful uh, businessman. Um, and uh, her name, well, you probably know it because there is a street in town off of uh, East Putnam Avenue that is uh, named for the family, and that would be Elizabeth Milbank Anderson. And of course, you know of Milbank Avenue um, off of uh, East Putnam Avenue. Uh, right now, it's probably one of the more uh, prestigious addresses to, uh, to have in Greenwich. There's so many um, enlarged uh, buildings there and condos and things. Quite, um, uh, quite something, uh, the changes that have uh, come to, uh, to that street. But I wanted to tell you a little bit about um, Elizabeth Milbank Anderson because um, she's very special and truly unique. Now, she was born on December 20th, 1850, and she died on February 22nd, 1921, so literally a year after the, um, uh, the uh, right to vote was finally granted um, to, uh, to women in 1920. Now, among some of the things that she did, she um, established in 1905 one of the first foundations funded by a woman, the Memorial Fund Association, which was renamed the Millbank Memorial Fund in 1921, with gifts of $9.3 million by the time of her death. And, of course, that was in uh, February 22, 1921. Now, Anderson, in her lifetime, she supported a wide range of health and social reform efforts during the progressive era, from tuberculosis to diphtheria eradication to relief work for European children following World War I, for which she was made in 1919 a Chevalier of the Legion of Honor by the French government. 
What else can I tell you about um, about this truly extraordinary woman? Well, one thing that I can tell you is this. The next time you um, either, well, I don't know if you want to take your eyes off the road, but the next time that maybe you drive by or certainly you walk by the Second Congregational Church, you might want to look up at the um, at the steeple. You'll see a very prominent clock uh, that um, that is there. Um, I believe that she was the one who donated the uh, the clockworks uh, for that, um, uh, that church, and so every time you set your your watch to it or whatever the case may be. Well, that was um, in large part thanks to Elizabeth Milbank um, Anderson. Now, as I said, she was born um, on December 20th, 1850, and that would have been in um, in New York City. And she was raised in a conservative Baptist family closely associated with the Madison Avenue Baptist Church. Anderson, like her father, was a devoted churchgoer, and she um, abstained from the consumption of um, alcohol uh, or participation in conspicuous social events of her day. Now, she was educated, interestingly enough, by private tutors, and uh, Anderson traveled in Europe and became interested in art, as was her father, who collected art of the famous Barbizon School. Um, in um, on, on July 15th, 1876, uh, Elizabeth Milbank, she married Abraham Archibald Anderson, and he lived from 1846 to 1940. He was a portrait artist um, who was the son of a Dutch uh, Reformed Church of, of the, I'm sorry, of the Dutch Reformed Church Reverend William Anderson um, and Sarah Louise Ryerson. Um, she was a descendant of Martin Ryerson, um, a, a Brooklyn magistrate in 1679, so in other words, one of the early uh, Dutch families of the New Amsterdam colony. And um, she was also a descendant of Juris Rapalje, I hope I pronounced that right, who came from Amsterdam in the year 1624. Now, Anderson's father, Jeremiah Milbank, was a successful wholesale grocer. He was a speculator in Texas territorial bonds and a manufacturer and a railroad investor. Now, his most successful business efforts were in the New York Condensed Milk Company, uh, which um, uh, you know was uh, founded in 1850. Uh, 57, excuse me, and it was renamed the Borden Company in 1899. Now, have you heard of Borden Milk? Well, I certainly have. I, I'm old enough to remember when our milk uh, was uh, delivered to us, even up in the um, backcountry in Round Hill where where I lived, and uh, I remember those um, uh, built, uh, Borden uh, Milk uh, bottles that uh, the milk arrived in, so there it is. Um, and um, and he was also an investor in the Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul Railway in, in, that was founded in 1876, where he was a member of the executive committee of the board of directors. Now, Melbank was a trustee of the Baptist Rochester Theological Seminary, which today uh, I understand is now the University of Rochester in upstate New York, and he owned a box in the, or at the Metropolitan Opera. The city of Milbank. South Dakota, which was founded in 1880, was named in his honor. That's the place that I'm going to put on my bucket list and go there someday. Be interesting to see what it is that I would find. At the time of his death in 1884, his fortune was estimated at $32 million. It was a lot of money in the late, um, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, and so one half of which he left to his son, Joseph, and the remainder to Mrs. Anderson and to her daughter, who was Eleanor Milbank Anderson. Uh, she lived from 1878 to, um, uh, to 1959. 
Anderson's recorded public health benefactions began uh, with her initial gift in 1891 to Dr. Edward Livingston Trudeau Sanitarium for the tubicular in, at Saranac Lake in New York, where from 1893 until her death, she underwrote the operating costs of his laboratory for the investigation of the treatment of tuberculosis. Um, Anderson's later gifts to improve public health included a provision in New York City of a model public bath, which was um, in 1904, the establishment uh, through the Children's Aid Society of the Chappaqua New York Home for Convalescent Children, which was founded in 1909, the operating funds with uh, Mrs. William K. Vanderbilt for the home hospital for the tubercular in 1912, and in 1913, the establishment of the Department of Social Welfare at the Association for Improving the Condition of the Poor, which was a predecessor of today's Community Service Society of New York. Now, the latter department uh, funded public school lunches uh, in New York City for 25,000 school children, provided funding for increased school-based medical inspections and supported installation of school drinking water fountains and improved ventilation. It also provided public quote-unquote comfort stations, which we call bathrooms today, public laundries, and in a tenement section of the city, a food supply store, which sold good quality food at cost. Now, the department also performed the groundwork which led to the establishment and funding of community health centers, including the Mulberry Street, Columbus Hill, and Judson Health Centers, all in New York City, and that was, uh, that was started in 1918 through uh, 1921. Now, in 1916, Elizabeth Milbank Anderson gave $100,000 to Lillian Wald's Henry Street Settlement and joined its board of directors, and separately became the lead donor to the city's Department of Public Charities Children's Home Bureau, which outplaced orphans from institutions to families. Now, um, from 1914 to 1920, Elizabeth Milbank Anderson was the largest donor to Clifford Beer's National Committee for Mental Hygiene, today's Mental Health America, where she was particularly concerned for the treatment of returning World War I veterans with what uh, was called, quote-unquote, shell shock. In the political sphere, Anderson used her influence with New York Senator Elihu Root to help push through passage in 1912 of the bill establishing the United States Children's Bureau, which folded into the Federal Service Agency in 1946. Now, in the field of women's and African-American education, Anderson was an initial supporter of Clara B. Spence in the creation of the Spence School, which was founded in New York in 1892, whose first graduating class included Anderson's daughter, Eleanor. Uh, Anderson also refinanced and rebuilt Greenwich Academy here in Greenwich, Connecticut um, in uh, 1914 to, uh, to 1917. Now, in the area of higher education, Anderson provided Millbank Agricultural Hall to Tuskegee University in Alabama. That happened in, in 1909. $50,000 in her will to Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee, and that was in 1921. And from 1896 until her death in 1921, she was the largest benefactor of Barnard College, where she served as vice chair of the Board of Trustees from 1899 to 1921. 
Now, separately in the field of human rights, Anderson provided $100,000 in funding to open in 1905 and support until her death the Harlem Office of the Legal Aid Society. Now, there's a lot more. <laughs> Don't go away. There's a lot more. In 1918, with the financial support of Elizabeth Milbank Anderson and partners Claw and Erlinger, Henry Miller, actor, um, created a Broadway theater on a lot Anderson owned at 120, 124 West 43rd Street in New York City. Of course, it's in Midtown Manhattan. Henry Miller's Theater between Broadway and 6th Avenue in Midtown Manhattan was designed in the neoclassical style by architects Paul R. Allen and Ingalls and Hoffman and was named for actor-producer Henry Miller. Now, the original theater had 950 seats and it opened on April 1st 1918 with the play The Fountain of Youth. It was the first air-conditioned theater in Manhattan and reflected Elizabeth Milbank Anderson's special interest in mechanical ventilation. Again, that's a, that's a fancy term, I guess, for, for air conditioning. Oh, well. <laughs> All right. Now, the theater had its first major hit with Noel Coward's The Vortex in 1926, and following Miller's death that same year, the theater was managed by Gilbert Miller, who was um, uh, the son of, uh, of, um, uh, of Henry Miller, um, who bought out the Claw and Erlinger interest and paid 25% of the gross take of each play he produced to the Milbank Memorial Fund, which was Elizabeth Milbank Anderson's legatee. From the 1930s through the late uh, 60s, the theater enjoyed significant success with performances by Helen Hayes, Leslie Howard, Lillian Gish, Douglas Fairbanks, and Ruth Chatterton. The theater still exists today and is now operated by the Roundabout Theater under the name, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, Stephen Sondheim Theater. Elizabeth Milbank Anderson lived in California for part of each year, beginning in 1906, and that was at uh, 350 South Grand Avenue in Pasadena, and then uh, in 1907 uh, in Los Angeles, um, where and when she built a home at 671 Wilshire Place. Her vacation residence in 1912 uh, was at um, uh, two, uh, 2300 East Ocean Beach Boulevard, and that today is now the Long Beach Museum of Art. As we start to conclude... <laughs> Uh, Elizabeth uh, Milbank Anderson died in New York City of pernicious anemia on February 22, 1921. She was interred here in Greenwich, Connecticut, um, in the Milbank Mausoleum at Putnam Cemetery in Greenwich, Connecticut. If you ever have a chance to uh, to come into um, Putnam Cemetery, and uh, you are welcome to, uh, to do so, of course, during regular business hours, the mausoleum is gigantic. It is the largest one uh, on the grounds of, uh, of Putnam Cemetery. It is also on the highest uh, point uh, of the um, cemetery, and as I stand here right now and look around, I can imagine that back in um, in, in uh, 1921, when she was interred here, that um, we probably had significantly less tall trees, obviously, than than we have now. And I would imagine that from this point, it was probably uh, possible to uh, to see all the way down to uh, Long Island Sound. It must have been quite um, quite a sight. Now, when she died, Elizabeth Milbank Anderson was survived by her husband. Uh, Colonel um, Anderson, her daughter, Dr. Eleanor A. Campbell, um, uh, who was actually known as Eleanor Milbank Anderson Tanner Campbell, 
M.D., and she lived from 1878 to 1959, and a granddaughter, Elizabeth Milbank Anderson, um, uh, whose name was also Elizabeth Milbank Tanner. Um, she lived from 1905 to 1930. Now, her primary philanthropic legacy uh, in public health is the work carried on today by the Milbank Memorial Fund. So, my friends, this is one of the major luminaries uh, in uh, Greenwich's late 19th and early 20th history um, to, uh, to really enrich this community, but many others, uh, not only in, uh, in New York City, but also across other places in the, in the United States, something that we're very, very proud of. On the 12th of March, 2022 at noon, join the Greenwich Historical Society staff for a special guided tour of the Bush Holly House, centered around the stories of Josephine Holly and her daughter, Constant Holly McRae, resourceful and entrepreneurial women who ran a bustling boarding house for artists, writers, and other cultural luminaries while pursuing their own personal and artistic pursuits. This hour-long focus tour will detail events and elements of the Holly women's lives in the progressive era, including their business dealings, participation in local civic organizations, and support of women's suffrage, and examine what life and motherhood was like for women in Kaskab in the early 20th century. Now, please note that face masks are required for the Bush Holly House tours. Space is limited and pre-registration is required. You can learn more about this at GreenwichHistory.org and look under the events menu. Well, ladies and gentlemen, mark your calendars. Why? Well, the 46th annual St. Patrick's Day Parade will return to Greenwich on March 20th, 2022, kicking off at 2 o'clock p.m., Presented by the Greenwich Hibernian Society, former Greenwich selectman John Toner will serve as Grand Marshal. Toner will be honored during the Hibernian Association St. Patrick's Dinner Dance on the following day, March 5th. Publicity Chairman James Doherty expressed excitement to see the parade return after two long years and the COVID-19 pandemic. It's been frustrating going through all the planning and getting everything lined up and all set to go and having to cancel it both years, quote-unquote, Doherty said. This year, it looks like we're on, no, we're on no matter what, and we're really excited to make it happen, unquote. We hope it's business as usual. We've reached out to all groups and bands who have marched in the past. So far, it looks like we're getting a good response. Two years off gave us time to research and look into new bands, Zoherty said. Now, he praised Toner and called him a worthy Grand Marshal. Quote, I've known John for quite a while and served on some nonprofit organizations with him, unquote, Zoherty said. And then he continued... He served the town as selectman, and I've never heard anyone say anything but great things about John. He's very active in the community and community-oriented and always looking to help people, unquote. Toner was born in Greenwich, the son of Barclay and Rose Toner, both immigrants from Ireland. After graduating from Manhattanville College, Toner spent two years in Ghana with the Peace Corps teaching English and literature. After the Peace Corps work, Toner began a 27-year career in finance with Chase Manhattan Bank, where he eventually became vice president. After retirement, Toner served in the nonprofit sector and in Greenwich Town government. 
1998, Toner joined the Greenwich Representative Town Meeting in District 2, where he remained until he was named as a selectman in 2015, following the sudden death of selectman Dave Tice. Toner was re-elected and retired in 2019. Over the years, Toner has volunteered with Greenwich Hospital, Coloride, and the Transportation Association of Greenwich, among many other organizations. The announcement of the parade's return comes as COVID-19 cases continue to decline following a surge around the holiday season and into the new year. My friends, you can learn more by going on the web to greenwichhibernians.org. That's spelled G-R-E-E-M-W-I-C-H. H-I-B-E-R-N-I-M-A-N-S, sorry, dot org. St. Patrick is Ireland's patron saint, said to have been born about the year 389 A.D. March 17 does not mark the anniversary of his birth. Rather, it marks the date of his death in year 461 A.D. Now, to many people around the world, St. Patrick's Day is a day worth celebrating. It is a day devoted to paying tribute to the Irish people and their patron saint, in as merry a manner as possible. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for me to go. You have been listening to the March 4th, 2022 episode of the Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, your host and a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of an extraordinary community we call home called Greenwich, Connecticut. I'll be with you again next week, and I look forward to sharing more of Greenwich, Connecticut's remarkable history with you. Thank you so much for listening today. Bye-bye now. (laughs) 